As you continue, stand. If you'd take your Bibles and open them to Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. If you need a Bible, there's one there in the pew in front of you on page 939, and you're free to take that Bible home with you. We want you to know God's Word and to read God's Word. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, we rejoice that you are a God who is transcendent and above all things. And yet, you are near to hear when we call out to you. We are thankful, Lord, that you know the beginning from the end. And you can predict for us the future. And here it is laid out, Father, before us, where you will triumph. And you will rejoice over your people that you have gathered. Lord, may we here today, none of us, miss out on the joy of your coming kingdom. May we here today not take lightly that we claim your name and we live before you. Lord, give us ears to hear 
Give us hearts that are already yielded to obey that which you're going to speak to us through your word and through our lead pastor. Lord, we need to hear from you. And we need to live what we hear from you. Help us to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hallelujah and rah, rah. Woo! Yeah! I'm just so excited. We have now come to the climactic conclusion of the book of Zephaniah. Hope through the darkness. And let me tell you, this is better than KU winning the national championship. Yes, they've done that. Listen, this is something to celebrate with. This is hallelujah. This is rejoicing what we just read and have heard now. Because up to this point, this Old Testament book has essentially been one of doom and gloom in what has felt like one body blow after another. God, in his justice and love, has chastised his people for their rebellion. He's called them to repentance and he's warned them of his coming judgment. And it kind of all makes you wonder, well, where's the hope in all that? And while that hope might be a little difficult to see while making our way through the darkness of God's judgment that's coming, it all begins to come into focus now in this last section of Zephaniah. It's rather amazing. In fact, after falling head over heels in love with my wife, I bought her an engagement ring the old-fashioned way. I actually went to the jewelry store in person, asked the man behind the counter to show me some rings in my price range, and then fell for his salesmanship when he added one ring outside of my price range with the words, it's rather special, don't you think? And then I took Darla to look at the rings being displayed, and he took out those rings, and he set them out on this beautiful, dark, velvet cloth where they just sparkled brilliantly against the dark background. Especially that ring outside of my price range. And of course, Darla spotted that most expensive ring and chose it without hesitation. Oh my, the price of her love cost me way more than I had planned. But let me tell you, it was worth every penny as I made those monthly payments for the next 18 months. Here's the point, the message of hope for God's people. It stands out all the more brilliantly because of the darkness of God's judgment. Zephaniah's message of doom and gloom in these first two chapters and even the first part of chapter three, it now turns into this message of hope and gladness in verses nine through 20. As Chuck Swindoll put it, here is the light at the end of God's tunnel of judgment. In fact, this last section, it's even somewhat a little unexpected in light of God's judgment. And yet this message of hope, it shines brightly for God's people Because only God is a God of justice and love. Only God is a God of love and wrath and mercy. One commentator put it this way. One of the most awesome descriptions of the wrath of God's judgment found anywhere in Scripture appears in the opening verses of Zephaniah. And yet one of the most moving descriptions of the love of God for his people found anywhere in scripture appears in the closing verses of Zephaniah. And so what hope God's people have through the darkness? God, who has been judging, is now singing. Notice the God who sings here. 
God rejoices over you with gladness and singing because He is mighty to save. Therefore, we, as His people, we have reason to sing now, even in the darkness. Now, don't skim over this. Don't gloss over this. Don't move on over this. Because Zephaniah has shown God as judging justly. But now he shows us a God who is singing joyfully, and he's singing because of us. Look what he says again in verse 17. He says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. So this is no remote God, distant and cold and untouched by our hopeless situation. Oh, no, this is God now rejoicing over you with gladness and singing because he is mighty to save. In fact, the general meaning and tenor of this verse is that God delights in those that he rescues and redeems. He doesn't delight in us because we are resourceful and we are good and we are strong. Oh, no, no. On the contrary, throughout our earthly lives, we continue to be rather weak and wandering and feeble and failing. Like God's people in Judah and Jerusalem, we still have much sorrow and sin in our lives. In fact, our sin makes us deserving of God's wrath, not his singing. And yet God delights in his children because they are his. They are purchased through his redeeming love. They are cleansed through the sacrificial blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And so this is somewhat like the climax of a powerful movie. And it's awful. It's also a lot like the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 where it is said in verse 20, but while the son was still a long long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. In fact, I love how John Piper summarizes all this when he says we must banish from our minds forever any thought that God admits us begrudgingly into his kingdom. As though Christ found a loophole in the law did some fancy plea bargaining, and squeaked us by the judge. No way, he says. God himself, the judge, put Christ forward as our substitutionary sacrifice, and when we trust him, God welcomes us with bells on. He puts a ring on our finger, kills the fatted calf, throws a party, shouts a shout that shakes the ends of creation, and leads in the festival dance. And so just thank God the Father is thrilled with the saving work of his son in your life. Is this how you think about God? He is a father who rejoices over you with gladness, who is eagerly at work in your life, strengthening you when you are weak, comforting you when you fall, working all things together in your life for your good and most of all for His glory. He sings over you with joy, content with the work that He is accomplishing in your life, no matter how incomplete it is right now. He is absolutely confident that He will bring it to perfect completion on that last day, as Paul says in Philippians 1.6. 
Now, of course, for those who are outside of Christ, for those who are not believers in Jesus Christ, this passage is not nearly as comforting, not nearly as hopeful for Instead, it reveals the sobering truth that there is still a day of judgment that is coming on all the world. A day when each person will have to give an account of their life and the sins they've committed. And of course, the question becomes, well, who could possibly stand in the face of such an encounter with the just and righteous judge of all creation? And the answer is, no one can. No one. Yet we, we, we may stand on that day if we are hidden in Jesus Christ. That is, if we have humbly come before the Lord and ask Him to completely cover us in His righteousness and to be our refuge. And to accept His perfect righteousness as a free gift by faith. Listen, that means to put us, we are now part of the redeemed people of God who he rejoices over with gladness and singing. And so it's God's people now. When you understand all of this, how can this not cause you to sing? We have reason to sing even in the darkness. And so lift up your eyes because your destiny is the glorious new Jerusalem that God has prepared for his people. Cancel your pity party and instead sing aloud with joy. God sings, you sing. Let me show you why. Number one, God promises a triumphant salvation in his name. That's why we sing. Zephaniah saw a wondrous conversion among the nations of the world as well as among the scattered people of Israel. We can echo what one commentator writes, judgment is not the final word. It simply means It is simply a means to bring the people of Judah and Jerusalem back to an uncorrupted devotion to the Lord. And so rather than being an end in and of itself, God's judgment helps now to bring about the triumphant salvation in his name. And first of all, notice this, God will redeem Gentile nations. God is and will redeem Gentile nations so that they call upon the name of the Lord in united, in universal worship. Listen to me. God will have a people for himself from among all the nations of the world who will call upon the name of the Lord. God will not only judge the nations, but he will also redeem people from among the nations. Look what God says in verses 9 through 10. For at that time, in fact, you see this word time repeated throughout these Verses here, 9 through 20. On that day or at that time, what's it referring to? It's the day of the Lord. So at that time, I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. And so here we see this wonderful message of hope, not just for God's people, the Israelites, but for the Gentiles now. That's us. God says that he will change the speech of the peoples to this pure speech. And this means so much more than just clean language. Or if you were a kid when your mom stuck a bar of soap in your mouth after you said a cuss word. It's not what it's referring to here. Pure speech is a reference to being purified inwardly. It speaks of repentance 
actually being accomplished in the hearts of people. And so what we see here is from rampant rebellion to repentant humility, Gentile people will be rescued and redeemed by God. And the result of this pure speech is now a readiness to call upon the name of the Lord in this united and universal worship. Instead of calling on false gods, they now call on the name of the one true God. This is a marvelous turnaround. By calling on God's name, we are indicating our trust in Him. We are affirming His character and His deity. We are recognizing our need for the grace of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a reversal of God's judgment at the Tower of Babel. You can read about that in Genesis 11. That's where God dispersed these nations, confused their speech. But here, the Gentile nations will be gathered together to worship the Lord with one accord. In fact, some translations even say shoulder to shoulder. It's it's a reference to united worship. It's a picture of united worship. And that is our joyful response to the grace of God at work in our lives. And so from around the world, picture it. God is redeeming a people for himself. This is what the Apostle Paul, I mean the Apostle John saw in the last book of the Bible in Revelation 7. Listen to what he says. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is why we were created and redeemed. To worship the Lord. This is why we also gather together in person each Sunday too. This is preparation for all eternity. This is a picture, a little small glimpse of what we will experience for eternity in coming together, gathering together in person, shoulder to shoulder, in one accord, worshiping the Lord. It is our response to God's saving grace in our lives. It's also why we give to global missions. It's why we support missionaries. It's why we give money through Faith Promise Missions so that the gospel can go out to all the nations of the world. Why? Because God is redeeming a people for himself. But it gets better. Notice what else God will do. God will renew Israel's remnant. He will renew his people so that they will seek a refuge in the name of the Lord as a holy and humble community. Listen, one of the breathtaking truths of God's grace is that it transforms the lives of people. Notice what God will do for Israel's remnant in verses 11 through 13. He says, on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. That's just an amazing statement in and of itself. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Holy mountain's a reference to Jerusalem. But I will leave you in the midst of a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. That again is amazing because that is exactly what Zephaniah, 
accuse them of being guilty of in this book. That's why judgment was coming. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. And so the people of Judah deserve shame due to their rebellion against God. And so for God to remove their shame, it is an act of indescribable grace and forgiveness. Furthermore, the people of Judah were proud people, very proud. But God will remove the proud from their midst while sparing the humble who trust in the Lord and seek refuge in the name of the Lord. And here's the principle for us by application. Get humble now so that you are not humiliated later when it's too late. Listen, Israel's remnant will be marked by humility before the Lord and even meekness before others as they live Holy lives, blameless lives. God promises in verse 13, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. God also promises to give his people rest. This is what Jews have been looking for ever since. The Middle East, there is no rest. And finally, rest is going to come at the end of verse 13, where it says, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Now, these promises were fulfilled partially when Israel returned to their land after being exiled in Babylon. But it was only a microcosm of something greater still to come. And so this promise has a double meaning. On the one hand, there's this historical regathering of Israel after the Babylonian exile. But on the other hand, there's a greater gathering of God's people coming on the day of the Lord. You say, what does all this mean? Simply means the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come for God's people. Look at this. God's promises will be fulfilled ultimately in the new Jerusalem where his presence will rule with his people in his place. In fact, that's what we are learning on Wednesday nights with God's big story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. This is what it's all about. It's so come Wednesday night and hear about this. God's presence ruling with his people in his place. And so all of history is moving in this direction, towards the new Jerusalem and the new creation. God will keep his promises to Israel and to the church. Zephaniah is certain about that. God's promise of salvation as well as judgment will be fulfilled on the day of the Lord. Yes, God's judgment is coming. Make no mistake about that. His judgment is coming, but so is his salvation. And so for those who put their trust in the Lord, for those who seek his saving grace, we can look forward with certain hope to the new Jerusalem in the new creation. This is what, again, the Apostle John saw in a vision in Revelation 21. Look at it. It's in your notes here. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who has 
who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And so like John, Zephaniah is encouraging us to see that the best is yet to come and that God has a redemptive purpose on the day when the Lord comes to judge and to save. Now, in light of this future hope that we have, the question becomes, how then should we live? How then should we prepare for this coming day of the Lord? And Peter answers that question for us. Peter tells us, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 14, he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God in speed it's, re- it's coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. That's how we should be preparing ourselves in living. Will we do this perfectly? No. And that's why we have the grace of God at work in our lives. That's why we continually seek Him day after day in His forgiveness. This is why and how God sings over sinners like us on the coming day of the Lord. God promises a triumphant salvation in His glorious name. And this should cause us to sing. Yeah. Right? Are you excited about that? You ought to be. But wait, there's more. There's more. Number two, God promises a jubilant restoration of his people. A jubilant restoration of his people. In this last section, Zephaniah paints this beautiful, beautiful picture of God gathering his scattered people and restoring their fortunes on the day of the Lord. Now, it's possible that Zephaniah is anticipating Israel's return from the Babylonian exile. And yet the way that he describes this restoration, I believe, points forward. It points toward a greater fulfillment that is still to come for Israel. And so what a euphoric message of hope to Israel's remnant who may be feeling a little insecure, perhaps overwhelmed by fear, and even a little despairing in life. And Zephaniah is specifically calling them to rejoice in what God has done for you and what God will do for you. Because God promises you this jubilant restoration, and this is a reason to sing as well. In fact, notice it. First of all, Israel will rejoice. They will rejoice just as God is rejoicing, and they will do so with singing and shouting for joy over the Lord's power and presence in her midst. Now listen, this is the appropriate response. In fact, it's the only response to God's redemptive work among his people, and that is to throw a party. It's to throw a party. And that's exactly what God is saying to Israel here. Remember, Israel was heading towards certain judgment and death. 
but instead a remnant of them have taken refuge in God's saving grace. And so there is much to rejoice about for them. Zephaniah explains the source of their joy in verses 14 through 17. Look at it again with me. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. That's what happens when we are paralyzed by fear. That's what happens when fear consumes us. We grow weak, even emotionally and physically and, yes, spiritually. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And it's just incredible here because Zephaniah uses four different verbs that are all similar in meaning to rouse God's people to action. Sing, he says. Shout, rejoice, and exalt. Now, why such loud singing? Why such shouting for joy, though? It's simple. Because of what God has done for His people. God has removed the judgments against them. Just as He has for us. Their rebellion had earned God's wrath. They were in the crosshairs of His judgments. However, because of His grace... They were now freed from that impending punishment. God has also turned back their enemies. Listen, we know from history, Israel has been attacked repeatedly by numerous enemies. But now, He has cleared them all away. You say, how would God do this? Oh, He comes in their midst. He comes in their midst, and He will do this by His power. And so by His very power, by His presence, He deals with their condemnation, and He deals with their enemies, and therefore they never again have to fear. Now this is amazing. This is a reason to sing. The King of Israel has come, and He is now in their midst. Woo! Shout hallelujah. Because this declaration is powerful. Just imagine with me how Zephaniah's original readers would have understood this message as they looked outside their rooftops and their windows and observed the spiritual darkness in their land and listened to the prophet's devastating prediction of Judah's fall and Jerusalem's coming destruction. And so what hope? They now have in God's promise that the Lord, the mighty one who will save, was someday going to come to Jerusalem and rule the world, bringing peace. Even today, think about this message and how it speaks to them. Israel is in a constant state of conflict. But a day is coming where God will bring peace to them and he will rule from Jerusalem. And so what a reunion that's in store for God's people as they experience true reconciliation with their king. What a reason to sing the king of Israel will come and his presence calls for rejoicing. That's a reason to sing. But there's another reason for them to sing. Second of all, Israel will be restored. 
Israel will be restored and praised among all the peoples of the earth. God promises. Now, this is just amazing to me. I'm telling you, I'm just blown away by the word of God. It's just, there are, as you read it over and over, you go through it, and especially as I have opportunity to study it like I do, and Chris does during the week, you're just blown away sometimes by what God does. Because God promises here to act on behalf of Israel in these six I will statements. In fact, depending on your translation, sometimes it's even seven I will statements. These statements of I will statements of restoration. And they're in contrast. They stand in stark contrast to the four I will statements of God that were about destruction at the very beginning of Zephaniah in chapter 1. And so at the very beginning, God says, I will, I will, all in destroying the world. And now at the end, he says, I will, I will, but it's all about the restoration of Israel. Look what God promises to do for Israel here again in verses 18 through 20. He says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I, God says, will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. And so right here, God promises to restore God's people as a testimony to his amazing grace and incredible power. God will reverse the devastation of the many, many intervening years of Israel's persecution and sorrow suffered at the hands of their enemies. In fact, this promise validates the principle that those who harm Israel harm the apple of God's eye, and they will not escape judgment. God's people would no longer suffer oppression because the Lord will gather them together and bring them all the way home. And this change in status would now result in a change in reputation among the peoples. Listen, Israel had been profaned and shamed by their exile into Babylon. And ever since then, they have been the laughingstock of their enemies. Even today, people laugh at Israel. People mock Israel. Nations implement policies against Israel. Sometimes even us here in the United States. But now God promised a day when they would no longer experience that shame. And instead they would be praised and honored among all the peoples of the earth. God's purpose is to restore the prosperity of his people. And so a day is coming when the whole world will recognize that God has purpose to choose and to love and to correct and protect his people when their kingdom is restored. This is another reason to rejoice. God will keep his promises that he made to Israel. And since these promises have not all been fulfilled yet, there must be a future for Israel. And perhaps some of you are sitting there thinking right now, well, that's good for Israel. Hurrah, hurrah for them. But what about me? I'm not Israel. Why should I care about this? Well, here's why. 
Because God's plans for Israel also reveal His character to you. Therefore, we ought to rejoice in God's plans for Israel. In fact, let me share with you just four reasons why, very quickly here. This is not in your notes. We rejoice in God's plans for Israel because we are included in those plans. That's what Zephaniah is talking about here in verses 3 through 10, as well as many other prophecies that include Gentiles in God's future plans. In fact, the New Testament provides many details for the future of Gentile believers who have trusted Christ as their Savior. And so we anticipate the blessed hope of his return, a hope that keeps us from the future judgment that will come upon the entire world. And later, get this, we will return to assist Christ in his earthly millennial reign. We rejoice in God's plans for Israel because we are included in those plans. Number two, we rejoice in God's plans for Israel because God is a God of grace. That's what Zephaniah is showing us here in verses 11 through 13. And though Israel is undeserving of her restored kingdom ruled by God himself, she can still anticipate such a kingdom all because of God's grace on behalf of Israel. But we too now, are we not part of that grace? Are we not beneficiaries of God's grace toward us? Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 8 and 9. For by... Grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And then number three, we rejoice in God's plans for Israel because God has great things in store for those he loves. That's what Zephaniah is talking about in verses 14 through 17. And while the blessings for Israel might be a little different from those for the church... We can rejoice over the fact that since God keeps his promises, those promises will be fulfilled no matter how difficult the circumstances are. Listen, God loves Israel just as God loves the church. This is a reason to rejoice and sing. We also, number four, we rejoice in God's plans for Israel because God will reverse the wrongs done to his people. That's what verses 18 through 20 are all about. God always sees what happens to his people. Israel has suffered greatly in the past, but she now can have hope for her restoration. But fast forward to the New Testament when Christ came. What did Christ say to those who were persecuted for his sake? Believers today can know that God sees, he cares for us. Believers in the future will likewise experience the same care from the Lord. So rejoice. Listen, God promises a triumphant salvation in His name. God promises a jubilant restoration for His people. Yes, the book of Zephaniah begins with judgment. But it ends with salvation, restoration, and hope. So sing. Shout over God's faithfulness to redeem us. His love that comforts us and His joy that rejoices over us. Zephaniah began his prophecy with this statement back in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. And now notice how he ends His prophecy here in verse 20. Says the Lord. Some translations also say it this way. The Lord 
has spoken. The Lord has spoken. You say, what's going on here? Oh, it is purposeful. Notice this, what God is doing. God is affirming for us that what he has promised will come to fruition. He is telling us with these words here that he will make it happen. And no one or no thing can stop him. That's hope through the darkness. Remember, what we read here in the book of Zephaniah is God's word, not Zephaniah's word. And therefore, it is God, a God of justice and love, before whom we will stand to give an account of our lives, which brings us to the most important question you can contemplate. And that is, will you sing with joy, or will you scream in fear on the coming day of the Lord's wrath? Listen, think about it even now. Contemplate that question now. When the Lord comes, will you be singing with joy or will you be screaming in fear? The good news is there is still time to seek the Lord's saving grace before it's too late so that you can sing with joy when Christ returns. Listen again to God's merciful invitation that is freely extended to you. Zephaniah 2.3 says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So don't wait to seek God's saving grace. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6.2, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor or God's grace. Now is the day of salvation. Jesus himself invites you to come to him in Revelation 22.17. The spirit and the bride say, come, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And we here who have come to Jesus Christ for our salvation, we have been redeemed from our sins. We have been adopted into his eternal family. Listen, we are now God's children. We are part of his eternal kingdom. And so let us here rejoice. Let us sing and let us shout with joy. Even in the darkness. Because God is coming. God sings, you sing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words here in Zephaniah. Lord, open our eyes to the glory of your justice and your love. Thank you for providing the solution to our sin and condemnation by bearing the judgment in your Son. We rejoice in Jesus Christ, our King the hope that he brings to our lives. And if we haven't yet, Lord, move among those who haven't. Let your spirit move in their hearts so that they might seek your saving grace before it's too late. Let them cry out in repentance of their sin and in faith claim you as their Savior and King. 
Let them even do it now in the quietness of this auditorium to save them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Wow. What a phenomenal book. And now you have gone through it seven weeks. It is phenomenal book of judgment, but also hope. There is so much, so much hope here for us as God's people. And so I hope you leave here this morning with that hope. As you continue to follow him, as you continue to worship him in your daily lives, as you continue to give of your finances for the mission and ministries of our church, whether you do that in person or online, we appreciate it. Perhaps you're here who is in need, food assistance, financial assistance, let us know. Reach out.